Every week they put this farther away. Well, this is good. I've got 15 minutes for the sermon. I will aim for 11.45. If you have to leave earlier than that, um, may God have mercy on your soul. No. You can feel free to do so. Thank you for the praise and worship this morning. Wasn't that awesome? I love it. I think it's a... I think it's a beautiful thing when praise and worship and the tone that set comes together with the weather. You know, and I'm serious about that. God knew that it would be sort of a heavy, oh, I kind of want to roll over and sleep in morning and kind of, and then he blesses us with a praise and worship time that is more reflective. And I don't know, I was thinking that maybe you were too as we were singing this morning, how it matched the weather. Bob and, and Chuck were teasing me about my time, but I assure you, it's an absolute coincidence that these are Steeler colors. Just like this Steeler watch is an absolute coincidence. And, oh, oh look, in my pocket I, I have a Steeler toothbrush. That's an absolute, just random chance that it was a Steeler toothbrush in my pocket. I heard... Um, with, with everything that's going on with the Rockies, I heard a Rockies joke this week. What do the Rockies and Broncos have in common? Neither can play football. I mean... <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's Pastor Appreciation Month, did you know? Yeah, Pastor, you get that rid of that tie, we'll see about appreciating you. Yeah, Pastor Appreciation Month, I've gotten two cards. You know, yeah, you know, two lousy cards. Now, if you're racked with guilt over that, um, there's a way you can make it up. Uh, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, World Series tickets go on sale. <laughs> Remember your pastor, okay? How many of you are going to be there clicking like mad, trying to get like. Yeah, at least you're admitting it. I'll bet even more. We'll see. They moved the time to noon, so you all start at noon, okay? <laughs> now I have ten minutes. Please, uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts 14, would you please, where together with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, we're actually about to wrap up Paul's first missionary journey. And all God's people said... I thought you might shout out, thank God, but thank you for saying amen. Actually, I want to pause a minute. We've got Coach McCartney coming next week, so let me give you some coaching encouragement. You guys are doing great with such a long, extended sermon series. Good job. There's not many students, not many congregations that could go on so long, and I'm proud of you. Um, when I first decided to do Acts, one of the thoughts I had was, oh man, 28 chapters covering 32 years of church history, that's going to take a while. Will they hang in there or will there be Israelite in the wilderness whining and gnashing of teeth? And so far I haven't seen too much gnashing of teeth. Interesting idiom, biblical idiom, gnashing of teeth, yes? Uh, 
they don't know what gnashing of teeth really means. When people gnash their teeth in the Bible, when they're displeased, or they just kind of... Everybody try that. I mean, I, I think the best guess is if you gnash your teeth, it means, you know, you're muttering against something. Well, you know, and she said, yeah, and then this Moses, Moses leaves us out here. That, that's gnashing teeth. So if the exterior starts to get long, go ahead and gnash your teeth. And that will be my clue that maybe it's time to move on to something. And if you need to brush your gnashing teeth, I have, okay. <laughs> As we round the bend, finally, halfway through the book of Acts this morning, You've not only hung in there, but you've stayed engaged, excited, interested. Way to go. I mean, seriously, you're you're to be commended. One of the reasons why I chose the book of Acts is that it is often overlooked. At least it's seldom studied from beginning to end as a whole. I'm not sure why. I can only guess. But I, I, I think these guesses might be on to something. The Gospels... They're longer, but let's face it, the Gospels have the story of Jesus here on earth, and that's kind of a big deal, right? And so people like to read the Gospels. And people like to talk about end times and um, the end of the world, and so Revelation is interesting, right? With all of its prophecy and graphic images, including my, my new favorite graphic image from last week with Brother Bob, ICE is in Revelation, did you know? If you were here last week, you'll get that. If not, you'll have to listen. People are fascinated with end times. And so Revelation is popular too. And then as far as the rest of the New Testament is concerned, the books are much shorter than Acts. You say, is that really a big deal as to why they might be more popular? And I think it is. We like shorter. We like getting to the point quickly. We especially like getting to neat and tidy points of theology quickly. And those theology points, they're easier to rest from the rest of the New Testament than they are in this historical narrative of Acts. And then there's Acts, this, this longish, drawn-out story that, that wanders around and, and reads a little bit like a history textbook. And sometimes, especially starting now, feels like it begins to repeat itself. With each new city that Paul and company reach, the stories can start to run together. And it's easy, especially right now, to to lose our patience with the story. I mean, we're only right now finishing Paul's first missionary journey. There's two or three more to go, depending how you count. And we might be tempted to begin thinking right about now, Just how many times do we need to read that Paul went into a city to tell people about Jesus? Some of them believed. Some of them tried to kill him. Okay, we got that. Bring on Revelation. Right? It's easy to start losing patience with the story. So I want to encourage you to stick with it. God gave us each of these stories for a reason. And as long as Acts seems... When you think about it, it's incredibly short, given that it covers a period of 32 years, right? Think of everything that can happen in 32 years. And the book of Acts gives us this this final cut for that 32-year pivotal period. We, We have in there what God really wants us to know from that time. Really wants us to know because He loves us. And wants to help equip us as we make our way in our day to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please, keep pushing with me, will you, into God's very words. 
With that pep talk, are we ready to dive back into Acts? God's people said? No gnashing of teeth, so let's go. Your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 14. Last time when we were here, you recall that Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. The Lystrians thought that Paul and Barnabas were the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. And just as Paul and Barnabas were convincing them they were not gods, a group of out-of-town Jews showed up. Paul gets stoned but survives. And we left off in chapter 14, verse 20, with Paul and Barnabas leaving Lystra for the next town just down the road called Derby. Before we leave Lystra behind, however, I'd like to take one last look at what Paul and Barnabas said, shouted actually to these Lystrans when they tried to offer sacrifices to them. So let's look again at that, shall we, beginning at verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, that they were about to offer sacrifices to them, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony, without a witness, which is what? He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. And they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. One thing I wanted to highlight for you this morning, one thing that stands out about this speech in Acts 14, and maybe you've noticed it yourself as we've studied Acts 13 and 14. The speech given in Acts 14 is remarkably different from the speech that Paul gives in Antioch in Acts 13. Did you notice that? If you've got your Bibles with you, flip back and and just scan Acts chapter 13. Paul's there in Antioch in chapter 13, and, and when he's there and makes his speech, he launches into this long, detailed, some might say three-point sermon, beginning with Israel and Egypt. And Paul goes through and mentions the likes of Abraham, Moses, Samuel, Saul, and David. And he takes all of that Jewish history, the big, long story of all of that Jewish history, through and including Jesus. Now, you compare that method of message and missions, if you will, to what we just read in Acts 14. In Acts 14, we get what? A a few sentences about rain and crops and food. Why the different approach this morning in Acts 14, do you suppose? I'd like to suggest two things, two keys to missions from our passage this morning. I'm sure there are more than two, but these two belong on the list. The first key to missions 
witness, testimony, we see here is that Paul knows his audience. In my opinion, one reason that the speech is vastly different here in Acts 14 is that the audiences are different. In fact, they're very different. Up until Lystra in Acts 14, Jews have dominated Paul's audience. Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, Gentiles at least, that had heard the basic story and, and knew God and worshipped God. This is the first time, and you always sit up and take notice when the Bible writers and God, for some reason, gives us a first-time instance in the text. It could suggest that that's why it's important. And, and this is the first time, the very first time in Paul's mission, that Luke gives us a story about an entirely pagan audience. I mean by pagan. About an audience that is dominated at least by the worship of the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. An audience that frankly didn't have a clue about the one and only living God. First time that Paul has that audience. And with that audience in front of him and the scene unfolding, you know, Paul had his Israel sermon all worked out, right? Maybe he had the notes in his pocket. But when he's faced with this crowd of Zeus lovers, Paul ditches the long Israel sermon and wants to talk instead about rain and the blessing of rain. Can you imagine if in that circumstance he starts rambling on about Egypt and Abraham? I mean, he wouldn't get those Israelites out of the Red Sea before several cows ended up at his feet, at his feet in sacrifice, right? So instead he yells out, rain, rain! I'm, I'm here on behalf of the living God, unlike Zeus who is not living. I'm here on behalf of the living God that blesses you with rain. And P.S., guess what? Remarkable coincidence, do you suppose? Not. Guess who just happens to be the Greek god of rain? Now, don't think too hard. You've only got two Greek gods to choose from this morning. Who just happens to be the Greek god of rain? Anyone? Zeus. Yeah, Zeus is the Greek god of the sky or of heavens or of rain. He's often shown with a lightning bolt in his hand. Same thing that ends up in Baal's hand sometimes uh, in the Old Testament. Interesting connection between Baal and Zeus. Maybe we'll talk about that more sometime. And so knowing his audience, and yes, I realize he's also a bit pressed for time, but knowing his audience, this amazing teacher Paul pitches the history lesson of Israel and Jesus, at least for the time being. And that's a great sermon for Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, but since they weren't there that day, Paul instead talks about something he knows is going to ring a bell in that pagan Zeus-crazy audience he's got in front of him, rain. He knows that a group of Zeus followers think that rain comes from Zeus. And so Paul, on the fly, grabs at his message as a first step at least to start talking about how rain doesn't come from Zeus, but comes from the one and only living God. And that gets their attention. Now, I've no doubt that Paul eventually would get to Israel and Jesus. In fact, he may have already earlier in Lystra. You say, how do we know that or why would we suspect that? After Paul stoned and dragged out, disciples come from out of that city and try to give Paul a hand. 
So it could have been, probably in my opinion, to have disciples of Jesus, Paul would have had talked to them about Jesus sometime before. Which only, in my view, makes this story stand out even more that we've got an all-pagan, all-Gentile Zeus audience. Paul talked about rain because he knew his audience. Today, I think that we can learn a lot from Paul's example. We need to know our audience in missions too. You know, the days of, or the method of, I don't want to be too hard on it because sometimes it's appropriate, but putting down what we believe in some sort of pamphlet and handing it out, regardless of who's there picking it up, that's difficult at best sometimes because we don't have that opportunity to develop relationship with them. And we don't know, you know, uh, who our audience is. Uh, one small example comes to mind. It happens quite frequently. I hear a story about a young woman who says the very first evangelistic push into her life was someone told her that God was, you know, like her father, only it's God, the father in heaven. Well, that young girl happened to be have a difficult childhood and had an abusive father. And for years, that was a hurdle in terms of her accepting. Can you see where if someone had taken the time to get to know her a little bit more, they might not have led with the God is like your father in terms of trying to reach her for Christ? We need to know our audience in missions. Who are their gods? What are their traditions? What is it that even individually they find interesting or important or powerful or cool? What do they like to do in life? Can we meet and relate with them there? And then somehow over time, and don't always be in such a rush, listen to the Holy Spirit. Somehow over time, either a short time or a long time, can we use what we're doing? Can we use their interest? Can we take their interest and somehow point it as Paul did the rain, to the one and only living God. Missions is not one size fits all, folks. Sometimes we might lead with the history of Israel. Sometimes we might lead with Jesus. But maybe there are times where we lead with just about anything that people find important or meaningful. And then try, as Paul did, to point it in some way toward God. So maybe in our culture, I don't know, we start talking about sports. Right? Or maybe we talk about science or cars or clothes. Or maybe even shopping, although that's a stretch for me at least. You, want, you can bring Jesus. You can bring um, someone to a lasting relationship in Jesus Christ by talking about science, cars, clothes, or shopping. Or maybe we begin our witness at least like Paul did and talk about the weather. Or we talk about anything that people find interesting and, and find a way to point whatever it is to God. Now, this can take time. Sometimes I think that's why we struggle with this. It's easier to have one set testimony, one set Israel sermon, one set brochure, and just to get in there and get out quick. It's much more convenient. But we need to be patient. Bringing the kingdom of God into someone's life can take time. Ultimately, it seems to me 
that evangelism is about developing a relationship with someone in the hope and prayer that that through our relationship with them, that one day, whether soon after or long after, in the Holy Spirit's timing, that one day through that relationship with us, they'll develop a relationship with Jesus. Isn't that evangelism? And relationships take time. We don't necessarily need to get it all out there in one big breath, which is really good advice for preachers, too. Amen? One question, I think, that we need to ask ourselves uh, about our missions. One check we can have is, do we have the patience for it, or do we only do missions when we see immediate results? Do we continue to reach out to someone even if they don't get it right away? Do we have the patience to persevere even if we can't begin counting converts right away? I think Paul's example here suggests that we need to be willing to take baby steps in evangelism. Be willing to walk before we can run. Take the time to get to know our audience. Jill and I are reading a book on marriage called Love and Respect by, it's got to be one of my all-time favorite names, Emerson Agerich. Isn't that a good name for an author? Emerson urges couples, one of the things he does is he urges couples to take the time to learn how men and women communicate very differently. It's just a different way of saying, isn't it, that husbands and wives need to know their audience? There's a joke that helps illustrate this point. A man and woman stand in front of their closet and each of them says, I have nothing to wear. But when a woman says, I have nothing to wear, she means she has nothing new to wear. And when a man says, I have nothing to wear, he means he has nothing clean. Right? Same words, but different meanings. And it might be a trivial example, but to best understand each other, both a husband and wife need to take the time to know what's behind the words, to know their audience, so to speak. How does he communicate? What is her deepest need? How will he hear and process what I'm saying, given who he is and what his background and gender is? What's important to her? And so on. And those same types of questions, I think, are equally important in the relationships we try to develop across cultures not just across gender, but across cultures in missions. Here's another example directly from the front line in missions. How many of you have heard of something called intelligent design? Intelligent design, yeah. First service too. Almost everyone at least that rings the bell. Intelligent design, it's really a curriculum. And its intended target are those who look to science as one of their gods. Intelligent design talks science in an effort to demonstrate that the most reasonable conclusion based on all of the scientific evidence is that there is a higher intelligence, God. There is a higher intelligence that created everything as opposed to the scientific theory that matter somehow popped into existence out of nothing And then once you swallow that, 
that matter that popped into existence out of nothing by mere chance somehow formed into the complex structures of life. By the way, did you know that the random chance theory of creation folks have published their own Bible? Have you heard? Have you heard what the title of their Bible is? The title of the random chance theory of creation folks Bible is from goo to you. Have you heard? Not really. Some of you, oh, write that down. I'm going to Google from goo to you. While we're talking about it, please, um, don't let, don't ever let someone from the goo to you cult make you feel stupid for believing in the God who created matter and then gave it life. Whenever someone tries to use science or whenever someone tries to make fun of the fact that I live my life based on faith and they live their life based on reason, I always ask them the same question. Maybe it will be something that helps you. I always ask them, I say, you know, Alan or whoever, what requires more faith? Believing that something popped into existence from absolutely nothing and then organized itself into the universe? I mean, which requires more faith? It just happened. Or God did it. Which one requires more faith? I think the answer is clear. In my opinion, it takes far more faith to believe in the popcorn random chance goo to you theory of creation than it does to believe that God did it, doesn't it? Do you ever want to drive a scientist crazy, at least a scientist who doesn't believe in God? Do you ever want to drive a, a scientist crazy, you want to push their button? You know, ask them, do you believe in God? Well, no. It's this happened and knowledge and reason. That... When they're done explaining, you could say, wow, you are a great man or a great woman of faith. And they kind of go, oh. but they are takes far more faith back to intelligent design i'm really excited about this curriculum it's using science to show that an intelligent designer is the most reasonable conclusion about the origins of life there are some christians and others who want to criticize intelligent design and the christian criticism comes from that intelligent design doesn't necessarily identify the one and only God. Or intelligent design doesn't mention Jesus at all. But my response is at least it's a start in the right direction, isn't it? If something out there is going to help me convince an atheist or convince a, you know, a, a, a from goo to you guy that there is a God at least, well, that gives us a head start, doesn't it? Isn't that a baby step, at least in the right direction? And then, and then we can come along and pick up the ball from there and through relationship, loving relationship, bring the complete witness of the one and only God and His Son, Jesus. Seems to me when intelligent design says that life comes from a designer rather than from nothing, it seems to me that's a whole lot like Paul saying rain comes from God rather than Zeus. The folks behind intelligent design took the time to know their audience, to know that one temptation for our kids and for us in school is to put our trust in human reason and human logic and in science rather than God. So they said, okay, 
those folks find reason and science impressive, let's find a way to take all of that and point it to God. And I say, A-plus, intelligent design. Way to go. Our second key to missions this morning, very briefly, comes from the rest of Acts 14. I've got a map where you can follow along while I'll read to see visually as Paul now goes home. They preached the good news in that city, Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch in Syria, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time. Estimates are about a whole year. They stayed there a long time with the disciples. In short, the second key to missions here from this text is that Paul follows up. And he does this throughout his ministry. He stays in one place for as long as he can, sometimes for months and even years. He revisits the new churches as often as he can. And if he can't come in person, he sends dear friends on his behalf. He relentlessly writes letters to them. In fact, the bulk of the New Testament are Paul's follow-up love letters to the early churches. He prays constantly for them, always instructing and encouraging and admonishing and holding up Jesus. He appoints local elders to help keep each church on course. Paul is relentless in his follow-up with the churches that he helped plant. You can see just how important it is to Paul. The man gets stoned and left for dead in Lystra. If I can have the map back up, Tom, that would be awesome. Thank you. And the next day, Paul manages to hobble down to Derby. And for whatever reason, they get done in Derby, and Paul and Barnabas decide, you know what, it's time to go home. We don't know why they decided that. It doesn't say in this instance that the Holy Spirit said, Psst, go home. I suspect we can ask them someday, at least I wonder if it's because Paul is still hurting from the stoning. It's a brutal process. If we have more sometime, we'll talk about what it meant to be biblically stoned. Brutal process. But for whatever reason, they decide to go back home and look at the route Paul takes home. Derby is just, it's only 200 miles away from Antioch in Syria, straight down one of the largest paved Roman roads in the world. Instead, Paul goes back home the way he came, a 500-mile road home, 300 miles out of his way. Why? In my opinion, it's because he desperately wants to follow up with the new churches he's just planted. He desperately wants to encourage them and to put in place leadership and to pray and to fast and worship with them. And all I can say is, wow! Paul heads back, and, and his first stop is where they just finished stoning him and left him for dead. Wow! His next stop is into the two cities, Iconium and Antioch, where the Jews who just stoned him live. Wow! 
What if he sees them on the street when he's there? Hey, guys, I'm back. Antioch's the city where the city leaders expelled him from the city. So he goes there risking arrest and imprisonment. There he is again. Wow. And even after that, it's like the man simply can't resist. He's so consumed with the love of God and the love for these new Christians and a love for people. He preaches in Perga and Italia, two cities he may have missed when he first came through. Wow! The man is relentless. He doesn't stop in Cyprus again. That's always curious to me. It's on my list of things to ask Paul. Why didn't you stop in Barnabas' home on your way back? I wonder, I suspect again, some have speculated, maybe it's because by now Paul is so hurting, so exhausted from this experience that he just needs to go home. There's a time for healing that everyone in missions needs, yes? But for whatever reason, Paul finally ends up back in Antioch of Syria. But not before he goes 300 miles out of his way to follow up with everyone he can. Do you think follow-up was important to Paul? Is it important to us in missions? Whether it's long-term or short-term, do we follow up with people? Do we take that time to develop relationship with them? The Holy Spirit and the church in Antioch of Syria commissioned Paul to go. In two years, 1,000 miles, about half on foot, one sorcerer, one determined group of stalker Jews, one expulsion from a city, and one stoning and left for dead later, whew, after all that, Paul comes home and spends a year, a whole year, reporting and fellowshipping and resting and drinking again from the living water that comes from the community of faith and gets ready to go out again. And he needs to get ready because, as you'll see, as hard as that was, the hardest part is yet to come. Next week, we've got Coach Mack. You don't want to miss him. He probably won't speak on Acts, but come anyway. The following week, we'll turn to Acts 15. And in my opinion, very few chapters in the Bible are more pivotal to God's plan of salvation than Acts 15. How's that for a tease? Do you want to know why? If you do, come back and find out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the blessing of rain or snow water from heaven, water that, yes, it may get in the way of our recreation, vacation, and even football game plans, but, Father, water that you send to nourish the earth and to grow crops and to feed cattle so that we can have food to eat. Thank you, Father, for water. Father, thank you for the amazing example of Paul and Barnabas. Father, would you give us, through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, the patience the time to get to know the audience that you put before us? Would you help us to resist the urge to simply toss a Bible at them and run? Father, I know that handing out pamphlets and giving your word to someone also can be an effective tool. Would you give us discernment then, Father? Discernment for when you simply want the word of God in their hands and give us every opportunity, Father, not only to place the Word in their hands, but to develop a relationship with them 
boy, Father, in that way perhaps we can use technology and the Internet and the fact that the world is a smaller place to really take advantage of that and get to know people, to know people through loving relationships into the kingdom of God. Would you help us to do that, Father? Give us, Father, the time and the energy to follow up with them so that one day, Father, through us, maybe all the ends of the earth and all the people could hear and know about Jesus, your Son and our Savior. We ask all of this in His blessed name. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a good day. Drive safely, please. Ah, if you would like prayer this morning, please come up this morning, or please come up to the front. There'll be folks who would love to get to know you and pray with you. Don't be shy. God bless you.